Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Amen. Thank you very much, Tavia. Thanks, guys. That was great. Would you like to take a seat? It's very nice to have you with us. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Ed, and along with Hannah, my wife, lead the church uh, that meets here. And if you have any um, problems or issues, she's the person you want to talk to. Ha, 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 ha. Never gets old. Uh, anyway, we're coming to the end of our series on the kingdom of God. This and next week will be our final two. And as I said last week, we are now turning our attention to how we live as people of this kingdom, in this kingdom. And talk of the kingdom in this way tends to um, expose a couple of hurdles that we may need to get over. Hurdle number one, that the Christian faith is actually much more than just believing correct doctrine. Hurdle number two, that we, and by we I mean you, each one of us, has a role to play in that kingdom. Two hurdles. Hurdle number one, it's more than just believing correct doctrine. The kingdom of God is not just a message, it is a demonstration. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom includes, from the get-go, signs and wonders. There is no doubt that his commission to his followers, which includes anyone who calls themselves a Christian, you and me, was to proclaim that very same gospel that the kingdom is here, which is not just good news, it's also healing and deliverance and miracles. Signs and wonders are no less part of the gospel than is the message of God's grace and God's love for you and the whole world. In fact, the two cannot be separated. Jesus doesn't emphasize one over the other, and neither must we. The gospel means it all. Word and action, good news and healing, grace and miracles, all signs that the kingdom is here, that Jesus is the king and the whole world has changed, the new age has come. The reality of this hits up against a core question about our faith. Is being a Christian about believing the right things or living a whole new way? Now, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. He doesn't say, I know what I have believed, because the Christian faith isn't merely a set of beliefs to ascribe to. But he also doesn't say, I believe in something, but I'm not totally sure exactly what it is, because Christian faith isn't some sort of wishy-washy, mystical, not-quite-defined experience. Rather, he says, I know whom I have believed, because the Christian faith is a person to be believed in, and to be met, and to become like. 
We're called to live as Jesus lived, not simply believe what he believed. And living like him necessarily means doing the things that he did, preaching the good news, healing the sick, casting out demons. It means announcing and demonstrating that the kingdom in all its scope and beauty and magnitude and wonder is here right now in this place. There's a famous anecdote of a man who became a Christian out of nowhere. He was actually quite a successful musician, And he became a Christian in his friend's living room. And then he read the Gospels and he read Acts. And he found the New Testament completely compelling. But this good Christian friend of his thought, I'd better take him to church. So he took him to church and he took him to what I think it would be fair to say was a pretty dead, boring, uninspiring service. And this new Christian sat there and in one particularly boring, uninspiring service, he leant over to his friend and said, when do we actually get to do the stuff? You know, the stuff in that book. I gave up drugs for this. That man uh, was someone called John Wimber who went on to do all the stuff. Healing and deliverance and power. And he went on to have a huge impact both on us and the worldwide church about actually Christianity being so much more than just believing the right thing. Now, some people have something of John Wimber's enthusiasm. They actually find, probably listening to me, quite boring. Could we please just do the stuff? Other people, though, are more reticent. Perhaps because we've been erroneously taught that all this stuff died out with the apostles and that false teaching is actually quite hard to shake because it's coursing through us, it's been with us since birth. Or perhaps we are a little skeptical of anything beyond our current experience. Why would we need the gifts of healing? We've got doctors after all. Or we just like being in control. And talk of the supernatural necessarily means we cannot be in control because we know that we are not supernatural in and of ourselves. Now, these are very understandable positions, but ultimately they are self-defeating ones. The reality is the supernatural is actually us now as new creations of the kingdom. So you can resist it all you like, Go ahead and resist it all you like, but what you will be doing is resisting yourself. Resisting who you have now become, which is only ever going to be painful. You see, the term supernatural is actually not a biblical one at all, and it would be good, good for us to avoid it if we can, because it conveys actually a kind of Greek thinking idea of these two realities. There's the natural world, and then there's the supernatural world. The biblical presentation, on the other hand, is of two ages. The age of bondage, of sin, of being restricted, and the age of deliverance. 
what Jesus has done has brought the age of deliverance into us now. And in the age of deliverance, the age to come, the age of heaven, we naturally things, see things that we might call supernatural, but are not actually supernatural at all. They are completely natural to the time we are living, completely natural to heaven. Things like healing and deliverance and prophecy and speaking in tongues, these things are natural to who we, are, who we now are, the age that we now live in. They are natural to you as a new creation. Isn't that frightening? So do not, though, resist the person that God has changed you into. Do not be afraid. You are, whatever you think of yourself, a healing, delivering kingdom person, and you always will be. This does go some way to explaining why lots of people, Christians and not Christians alike, have always been interested in something more, something beyond the material that we see around us, be it the demonic or the occult or tarot or horoscopes or I'd probably throw in psychedelic experiences because we know that we are in this constricting uh, bondage age and we sense for something more. We sense for being delivered, being set free, having an experience beyond this. So we search in all sorts of different areas for it. Now, if you, as a Christian, have involved yourselves in those sorts of things, wow, that was an involvement. I didn't know where that came from. But if you've involved yourself in these things, it suggests a couple of things. One, your experience of the Christian faith has been deficient. Because a proper kingdom-based Christian faith will be supplying all the spiritual power anyone could ever handle and way more than you can actually handle. Number two, it suggests you are actually wanting something more. Here's the encouragement. The more is right here, right now. For each one of you. So rid yourself of some silly substandard versions which only bring you less bondage rather than, I'm sorry, more bondage rather than less bondage and open yourself to the age of Jesus. His kingdom is here. His kingdom is at hand. Jesus is king and he will supply all the heaven you can shake a stick at right now. He's calling you into more. Second hurdle to overcome actually believing that you, little old you, have a role to play. Let's read today's passage from Ephesians 4. This is um, coming after, actually, three chapters where Paul has basically set out how wonderful it is what Jesus has done for us. Those are the first three chapters. That his kingdom has come that in Jesus' body he has defeated all evil, all division, all destruction, all the things that stop us being the people that we're supposed to be, and he has made the whole of humanity a new humanity, a new creation in him as one. Everyone is welcomed in. So having done that, he then turns his attention, chapter 4, to, to addressing how do we, as good inhabitants, in, inheritors of this kingdom, become the people that we're supposed to be? How do we mature? How do we grow up as Christians? So this is chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is no way around it. We, as Christians, are called to be one. The process towards unity is both passive and active. Unity happens to us, and we have a role to play in maintaining and creating it. You see, the worldwide church, all Christians around the world, we are like a family, but we're like a broken family. Mum and dad do not like each other, and they are separating. The children do not like each other, and they are going to live at different parts of the world and even change their name legally so that they can be disassociated from one another because they don't like the things that the other people in their family believe. This is a picture of the church. Isn't it beautiful? That's a joke. However, despite all of this, biologically, are they or are they not still a family? Yes, they are. And this, I think, is how God looks at his worldwide church. He looks at them and goes, you're my family, and I love you. And I am one, and therefore you are one. There is no way that we can split the church in the same way that there is no way we can split God. His unity is inevitable. The church's unity is inevitable. This is the passive aspect of Christian unity. Here is the active Unity depends also on the quality of our character, verse 2. Humility. Not humiliation or self-flagellation, but the sort of humility that Jesus displayed of knowing our need before God. And gentleness, which is not weakness, but it's putting other people first. And patience and love are essential to us actually sticking together and being one. Have you ever tried to reconcile with someone without any of those sorts of qualities flowing through your being? And verse 3, it's going to take some effort. We actually have to try at this. It doesn't always come naturally. The church has got a lot to answer for, hasn't it? Almost since its inception, the church has caused untold pain and sorrow but it's still his church, and we're still his people. However much reason we have, and I know some people in this room have huge reason to be very frustrated and angry and incredibly hurt by the church, how much more does perfect God? One of Jesus' ongoing battles when he was on earth was not with the people who were opposing him, but the people who were on his team, the disciples, the idiots, they kept on getting it wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. Whatever he said to them, whatever he did with them, he spent all his time with them and they still got it wrong. They stopped him from doing the things he was supposed to do. Yet he did not give up on them and he hasn't given up on us and he won't give up on the church because it's his. I would strongly encourage you to deal with your church pain whilst also understanding that almost certainly we'll continue to have it for our whole time from here to eternity. Because Christians are such idiots, aren't they? But can I encourage you, and I'm someone who loves to hold on to pain. I love a grievance. 
Hannah's even better at holding on to grievances. She loves a grievance. When it comes to the church, let's try and give them to Jesus, shall we? Because they're only going to do it again and again and again and again. And we've got stuff to do, all that good stuff in the kingdom of God. One of the things um, that I've heard, actually, a number of people say since we started meeting again in person, people who hadn't been to the church previously who have come have gone, wow, there's a real sense of family and community here. People really like each other. They go to lunch afterwards, and they know each other's names, and they spend time with each other. This is wonderful. Can I say to all of you who do that and who have created that, thank you from the bottom of our hearts, mine and Hannah's hearts, I'm speaking for her again, uh, but thank you. Because it's a sign of the kingdom. The challenge to us is to sustain it as we continue to grow. That's going to be the challenge. But the more we do it, the more we can see that God's kingdom has come. I know of no other place where the most influential people in the world sit down as equal with those who have no influence. Where rich, famous, successful, whatever you want to term as successful, sit down with people who have none of that and are equals, because we're all equal under Jesus. I really loved, if you were here last week, uh, there was a wonderful guy called CJ who came, who was suffering from homelessness. He's now going back into, he's, he's got a home, which is great, but he came to the service. And um, like all the best people, he did not give uh, monkeys about airs and graces. He was just going to be himself. And to, towards the end of the worship, he just started dancing in worship of Jesus. I love that. I love that. And I love the fact that it can happen whilst there's bunches of us. I'm, I'm British and I'm really posh. I would never do that. <laughs> but there he was. And I love it. Why was I talking about that? Oh, yes. Let's be one. Let's be a family of very different people. Because, finally, unity is enriched by diversity. Effort and character are not actually enough. We're only going to be the one mature church of God's kingdom to the degree to which diversity is celebrated and everyone has a part to play. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Uniform, uh, sorry, unity does not mean uniformity. God's kingdom is not one of bland cookie-cutter sameness, whether that's bland cookie-cutter hipster megachurch or bland cookie-cutter uh, traditional kind of uh, mainline elderly church. If it's bland and cookie-cutter, it is not the kingdom of God. Diversity is what we're going for. Unity actually requires beautiful, life-enriching difference. Because, consider this, if you go to somewhere and you find that you do not fit, there is no one like you, are you going to feel like you want to be part of that church? Probably not. And therefore, unity is lost a little, a person at a time. But if you go somewhere and you go, everyone is welcome, everyone is different, no one is trying to be the same, they're just trying to be the, their own person, you will go, I want to be part of that because I am seen and noticed and I am valued. And that's what we're going for, for everyone. 
We are all one. Nope, not there yet. Calm down. So he gives grace to each as he apportions it. Now, grace here does not mean, it does not mean Jesus' forgiveness or love for people. Jesus' forgiveness and love for people is infinite. It's for everyone. What grace here means is actually individual giftedness. The term that Jesus use, uh, that Paul uses elsewhere is uh, charismata. Charismata, charismata. Charis means grace. Mata means the thing that's given, a gift, uh, the givingness. So it's grace gifts. What Paul is talking about here is gifts of grace to each and every single person, individually, uniquely, as Jesus decides. We are all one, but verse 7, Jesus has individually to each one gifted us, which, verse 8, is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. This sounds a bit weird. It's a bit complicated. It's actually not too um, complicated at all, quite straightforward. It's a quote from Psalm 68. This is a psalm of David, and what David is longing for is the kingdom. And what he is longing for particularly is that the king, God, will come and deliver his people, wipe out his enemies, and take them captive. Paul is using it because Paul is saying, this has already happened. This has happened in Jesus, but not in the way that David was envisaging it in a much bigger, more cosmic, uh, magnificent sort of way. And what Jesus has done is, by descending, becoming human, being crucified, being resurrected, is he has taken captive not earthly enemies, but all the enemies of us, evil death, destruction, the devil. He has taken captive of it because he has now raised and he has ascended and he is victorious and he is the king. And what victorious kings do because of their victory, they celebrate their victory by giving good gifts to their people. They want to celebrate it. And this is what Paul has in mind here. The point is, these grace gifts, these little gracelets, are inevitable. This is what victorious kings do for their people. They shower people with the gifts of victory. Last Saturday, Arsenal beat our big rivals, Tottenham, 3-1. And I have been celebrating for a week because my life is that meaningless. But what I do is I keep wanting to find little gifts of victory to celebrate. And so I go and find them on Instagram, on memes. I don't even know what a meme is. But anyway, I find these things, and they make me happy. Jesus is gifting us with his grace. So Christ himself, verse 11, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to quit the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness of Christ. So let's get practical, shall we, as we end. There are various lists in the New Testament of these gifts of grace. Now, how these different lists relate to each other is not entirely clear. I would be wary of any teaching that um, neatly categorizes all the gifts and who gets what and where and when and how. 
as Paul says here and elsewhere, these are gifts of Jesus, apportioned as Jesus wants it, so let's not try and control him or the gifts. God is the one who decides who, what, where, when, not us. But let's also not make the probably easier to make mistake, the opposite one of not taking these seriously. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians to eagerly desire the gifts of grace. We have a dog. He's not the dog we ordered. He's not the dog we wanted. We have come to sort of love him in his own special way. We have a dog. His IQ is below average, a long way below average. And he, like many other dogs in LA, gets very hot because he's carrying around with himself the whole time a big fur coat. And I imagine if he was capable of rational thought, which he most certainly is not, but if he was, he might think to himself, why did anyone think it was a good idea to take me and my ancestors away from wherever we grew up to this hot Southern Californian desert? I would be much happier in Bavaria or in the mountains where I can roll in the snow. And yet he is here. He wouldn't be able to think any of those things. He's just a dog. But when he gets hot, after we've taken him on a hike, when we come into our lovely air-conditioned home, he sprints up the stairs with one thing on his mind, his water bowl. And he goes for that water bowl with not a care in the world. And he slobbers everywhere. It, it slaps against the patio door, the nicely cleaned glass door. His slobber slaps against it. And water goes everywhere. And he puts his head in that. He's actually a very inefficient drinker, but he is highly enthusiastic. And he drinks and he drinks and he drinks. And then he sits down self-satisfied and pants with his tongue hanging out the side of his head like Ed the hyena from Lion King. He is a stupid stupid dog, but we love him. When Paul talks about the gifts, he says, eagerly desire them, and the language is like a salivating, slobbering dog. Go for the gifts. Go for the gifts. Desire them. Be desperate for them. Be like Ziggy. So there are different lists throughout the New Testament. Some, like the ones found here in Ephesians, are more vocational. They seem like lifetime gifts, being a prophet and remaining a prophet. Others are more situational, like the gift of a word of knowledge comes to a specific person at a specific time for that moment. Now, our vision for church, Hannah and mine, as much as we have one, which we don't really, but if we have one, it's two things that all the gifts are represented. And that all people, not just a chosen few, would flourish in the use of their gifts. Too often, churches are dominated by one or two kind of drives, usually those which best fit with the main leader. So you have teaching churches, which is anathema or social justice churches. Every church is a teaching church. Every church is a social justice church. You don't get to pick. Or, equal problem, only some people are operating in their gifts, usually the people who are paid to or the people who think that they're important. We want 
all gifts to be represented and all people to have the opportunity to express them. Everyone gets to play. Not everyone has to, but everyone gets to. And you will be a far happier bunny in the kingdom of God the more you are expressing your gifts. It will bring you untold joy and it will bring us untold joy to watch you expressing them and to benefit from you expressing them. But it does necessarily mean you need to know what your gifts are and you need to have the opportunities to use them. So let us look at this list in more detail. Now, since the five gifts that are listed here are more vocational and less situational, I think that Paul is saying you're probably going to, everyone is probably going to identify with one or two. These are most likely going to encompass the whole of human beings. They are going to identify and think, that's probably me. To be clear, he is not talking about personality here. This is not a personality test. He's talking about grace gifts from Jesus. Nevertheless, in my experience, we are all wired in particular ways, and we tend to um, be gifted in the things that we actually kind of like to do that are kind of coursing through us. Take Paul, for example, the Apostle Paul. Before he meets Jesus, he is this zealous, belligerent, slightly angry persecutor of Christians. After he meets Jesus, he is this zealous, slightly belligerent, kind of a bit angry, non-persecutor of Christians, but he's just going for the same thing. Because this is what we are like. God uses us as we are like, and he uses us for his kingdom. When people ask me, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what my gifting is. My first question is, what do you actually like to do? What do you like to do with your life? Often, people who have not been brought up in the church find it a lot easier to know what they're supposed to do because they haven't had all this churchy stuff going on. They've just been doing what they're supposed to do, and then they become a Christian, and they just do it for Jesus. It's great, unless it's, you know, something non-Jesus-y. Then they need to do something else. Apostles. This literally means sent out one. So you can try and identify as we go through this who you might be. This means sent out people. There is no biblical or historical evidence to back up the idea that apostleship has now somehow died out after the New Testament was written. There is, of course, a difference between the apostles of Christ, those who spent time with Jesus, who wrote most of the New Testament, the 12 disciples and Paul, uh, and those who are apostles now and who do apostly type things but who are not going to be adding to Scripture. These are people, though, that break new ground, who get out and go beyond the norms, who start new things, who lead from the front. The church desperately, desperately needs apostolic people to drive the mission of the kingdom forward. Otherwise, we stagnate and shrivel and we don't go anywhere. Apostolic people can be impatient, they can be aggressive, they often find the mechanics of organizations frustrating. I think Facebook's original um, mission statement was, move fast and break things. That is apostolic. On the positive side, they are the ones who keep the church impactful. Prophets. 
Again, these are not the same as the biblical prophets. Contemporary prophets will not be adding to Scripture. Rather, prophets build up the church in line with Scripture through exhortation and edification, consolation. They are encouragers, but they understand what God is saying in the moment. Often it comes uh, in, a, in a moment in their mind, this is what God wants to say to his people. The word prophecy actually means not foretelling, i.e. telling the future, but forthtelling, speaking out what God wants to say. We had a couple of prophetic words that Kristen uh, mentioned earlier. The picture of um, a shriveled person being brought uh, up by the touch of Jesus. The picture of dirt falling away and seeing gold inside it. This is what God wants to say to you. Some people will resonate with that because it's God speaking. Prophetic people, they tend to recoil at any sense of duplicity or compromise, particularly when displayed by the church. They love the truth because they know its power. They can often be a little bit quirky in the best of ways. Think John the Baptist. He ate locusts. He wore strange clothes. They can have a purity and a single-mindedness that can be a bit unnerving. The church desperately needs prophetic people to speak the truth and keep it in check. Hasn't this year displayed with alarming clarity just how far the church has wandered off into things that have got nothing to do with Jesus? It needs prophetic people to say, stop that now. Come back to me, Jesus, and be resurrected again into the world-changing power that you are. That's why we need prophets. Prophets often already know the truth. That's not their problem. They know the truth all the time. They just don't necessarily know how to give it, when to give it, and who to give it to, and sometimes not to give it at all. It's just your burden. Enjoy it. Evangelists. Evangelists preach the gospel. They are primarily devoted to bringing people to meet Jesus. Nothing else really matters. They love Jesus, and they fully understand grace. Nothing is more important to them than the power of grace and that it would never be watered down, that it would never be corrupted, that it's beautiful, beautiful grace. Evangelists would be happy if every single week at church it was the prodigal son over and over and over again because it's wonderful, it's beautiful, and everyone needs to hear it. And who cares about the older brother? The younger brother. That's what they love. Often they can find church very constricted especially if it has no focus on the outsider or has swapped the message of grace for something lesser. Evangelists often appear quite cold, but actually their heart breaks for people who are lost. They go where the people are, and they despise religiosity. Did you know this is the first year on record where fewer people are going to church in America uh, than are going to church? first time that it's shifted. It's only going one way after this. And those that are leaving the church are almost universally 25 years and under, and the reason they're leaving church is because the church has forgotten Jesus, and it's not preaching Jesus, and it's not doing anything useful, and it's aligning itself with a whole load of stupid things. We need evangelists to come back and say to people, let's return to Jesus, to know Jesus. Pastors, now, this does not refer to the term that um, 
is commonly used of church leaders in this country and other countries. I actually don't really like the term pastor for church leaders because it suggests that the leaders of the church are responsible for each person's individual spiritual health. They're not. You are. But pastors in the New Testament refers to people with pastoral gifting. Church leader is a much better term for church leaders. They're supposed to lead the church. Pastors are vital. They are those who care deeply for people. Those who create community and warmth and love and family. I didn't want to pick anyone out, um, but I just saw him because he's got big hair and I'm going to pick him out. Seth is a wonderful pastor. He, doesn't he love people? If you know Seth, he just loves people. The church needs more and more Seths to make people feel welcome and loved and seen and known. This is a very lonely city, isn't it? Pastoral people have particular care for the grieving and the hurt. Those who've been beaten and battered. And they want to look after them and hold them in their arms. Finally, teachers. Teachers teach. I've started um, coaching my daughter's soccer team. I know an awful lot about soccer. I know far too much about soccer than is healthy for anyone. I really could write books on soccer. It's called football. The girls that I am coaching do not. They do not know anything. However, the directive from on high, from the people who choose coaches to coach, is let them explore football, soccer. Let them kind of learn as they go, see how they do. And I'm supposed to, rather than teach things, ask questions. So I'm supposed to ask questions like, what do you think you learned from conceding that eighth goal? As opposed to, if you do what I tell you, you will not concede eight goals. You'll probably score quite a few. Just do what I say. Because I cannot help myself. Teachers teach. Teachers want to impart their knowledge on other people to help them. There's lots of different ways to teach. The church needs teachers. Now, we believe, obviously, in all the gifts of the Spirit. We are charismatics in that sense. But charismatics have, and sometimes this has been quite well-earned, the reputation of not being very good at teaching or not caring much about teaching. Now, the reality is we should be the best teachers in the whole wide world. It is, after all, listed here as a charismatic gift. We should be brilliant. We should be the best Bible teachers because we know that the truth sets us free and we love the Bible. We love the correct interpretation of the Bible. We need to be people who are trying to expand our minds as much as we possibly can so that the truth will flow out of us and we preach it and we teach it because it sets people free. So, I'm ending, don't worry. In general, people tend to be motivated in life by either a love for people, a love for processes and principles, or a love of projects. People, processes and principles, projects. Who are you? 
Pastors tend to be people people. Evangelists, teachers, prophets tend to be process or principal people. Apostles tend to be project people. When all five drives are being properly represented, when they are functioning, then we have healthy, dynamic, world-changing church. Let's just consider those who think God could never use me, who've been sitting there throughout this going, yeah, this doesn't apply, because me, whatever me means. If you are thinking this, can I just say congratulations, you have made it to the starting line, some people never do. Well done because you are exactly the sort of person that God has always used and always will use. The story of the whole Bible is people protesting their lack of qualifications, protesting that surely he doesn't mean them, doesn't he mean the person next door or the person sitting next to me, and look at those people, they're so qualified, surely not me, and God's saying, no, you. You're the one I want. Go in my power, not your own, because you, you don't believe that you have any, which is good, because you don't, in respect to my power. Go in my power, and I will use you to change the world. He uses the weak things. He uses the things that are not. Because then no one is left in any doubt who's the power is. I love when God takes hold of someone who thinks they've been disqualified and uses them to shame all the people who also think they should have been disqualified. I love that. It's God's little joke to the world going, ha, see what I can do. This person who completely discounted themselves, this person who the rest of the universe discounted, I'm going to use my chosen instrument. That's the one I want. So if you are feeling that, please, please, can I encourage you, open yourself to allowing him to fill you and see what he does. It could be quite extraordinary. But whoever we are, whatever gifts we identify with, the process always remains the same. During the worship, I felt God say to me, I wasn't, I wasn't really, um, it was nothing to do with worship, it was just to do with me. I was kind of there going, ah, I'm finding this a bit difficult. And I was asking God to speak to me. And as the worship was going on, I just felt God say to me very clearly, very simply, do you want to follow me again? It's quite easy as a professional Christian to just kind of go through the motions. And that's what Jesus was saying to me. But actually, it's what he's saying to all of us all the time. The process is the same for all of us. Do we want to allow King Jesus to be king of ourselves, of all our dreams, of all our gifting, of all our calling? Do we want him to be in charge again? Hand it all over to him and see what he does. Our temptation will always to be hold, to hold something back because we don't fully trust him. Do as much as you can. The people who are used are the people who don't know any better and kind of ask, them, ask to be used. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, to those who give, more will be given. 
open yourself and see what he does. Good. That'll do.